Hi! Welcome to the CGOB Sports Show podcast. On this episode, we talked to Mackenzie Zacharias and Jacques Gauthier, World Junior Curling Champion Skips, about their experience in Krasnoyarsk, Russia, bringing home the gold. Also, we'll talk to Winnipeg's Butch Goring, New York Islanders legend, getting his number retired this weekend on Long Island. And then also Hector Vergara of Manitoba Soccer Association on why it's important to not be mean to refs. That's all on the podcast. What was that week like? You start off a little bit bumpy, but then you turn it around and you end up with the gold medal. Just take me through the week. I think uh, that's a good question. I think that week was a really, really good indication of kind of how this team is, has been all year. I think we stumble out of the gates just in general in our season and kind of had to talk with ourselves about why that was and pulled it back together and kind of improved on the rest of the year. And I think, you know, after our first game against the States, those guys played really, really good. We were just shaky, hadn't adapted to the ice as well as they did. And, um, you know, after that point, it was all of our first game at the Worlds, and so we could have been down on ourselves, but we kind of talked after the game how we were feeling and uh, kind of took a lot of the positives that we took out of the game instead of the negatives and got a little bit of a run before the playoffs and then lost this, the Scottish team and, again, could have been down about ourselves going into the playoffs in a negative light. But, um, again, we had to talk about ourselves. We are all feeling pretty good about ourselves. And uh, you just, you know, chalk it up as a bad uh, a bad day and went to the playoffs with a new mind. And I think, uh, yeah, I think that helped us uh, persevere through it. And I think that showed uh, kind of how our week went. And your week was very similar, Mackenzie. <laughs> you lose early. You lose the last round robin game. But then you're able to overcome that. Your final was a lot tighter than the men's one was. You fall behind early to Korea. How tough was that Korean squad? Because they were the favorites in the tournament. Yeah, that Korean team was. They were so great all week. Um, they were top of the standings. Um, each of the players are playing the best out of all the positions in the field. Um, they were undefeated and rightfully so going into the final. Uh, we knew that they hadn't been pushed a ton during the week, um, including our game. We played them once during the week and didn't do too well. So we kind of had a game plan going into the game, and we kind of stuck to it. We did get down early, but that was kind of the story of the week for us. We'd always get down and have to fight back. Um, and we knew if we kept it close that we'd have a good chance, and uh, that's what we ended up doing closer to the last couple ends, and then we were able to come out with the win, which was fortunate. It seemed like once you, you got a, a deuce on the board and transferred hammer back to them you're able to put more pressure on the Korean team in the last few ends yeah they hadn't had a ton of points scored on them all week so they weren't um, used to like too many deuces being scored on them so I think we surprised them a little bit with that um, and just we started to play our game later on um, and uh, we were just able to put more pressure on and I think that's something they hadn't seen yet so for you Jacques was it a, a bit of a relief to see Switzerland upset Scotland having lost to the Scots or did that matter to you yes and no I mean we we wanted another crack at Scotland anyway, I think, because when we played them, I personally wasn't very good. Uh, we had a hit for three in the first end and only got one. and So we wanted another chance at Scotland anyway, but you know, either way we knew we were going to have our hands full because the Swiss guys lost the final last year and the guy who was skipping that team was playing. So he had that experience. And so either way we knew that we were going to have our hands full, but um, we would have welcomed either team. So it wasn't a super close game. You win 7-1. It didn't, you didn't need a 10th end. Was there at any point you thought, all right, we got this? Or did you did you not let that go enter your mind until the very end? Yeah, I don't think we thought about it, honestly, until uh, until they shook hands. Because in the eighth end, um, I thought, our whole team thought that they were going to shake and it was just going to be over. 
and we could just stop worrying about it because you're kind of up the whole game, but you can never kind of count your chickens before they hatch kind of deal. So we thought that they were going to shake and we weren't going to have to make anything, but the fact that they played nine, we knew that we were still going to have to make our peels. And at that point, I was just kind of running through the scoreboard situations in my head like hey if we give up three here they have to steal three or give up four this that and there's it's still not over like they you still gotta you still gotta play so uh, I don't think any of us really kind of counted anything for granted or took anything for granted until the game was actually over and it went down to the wire in the women's match Mackenzie how tense was that final end for you yeah, super tense. Uh, we were up two in our semifinal as well, going into the last end against Russia. So we had been in that position, and we ended up giving up two in the last end and taking it to an extra. So we knew that was definitely a possibility going into the going against Korea because they were so good. Um, we just really played a solid last end, I think, um, and we were able to eliminate a lot of stones. And um, Korea just came up a little bit short on her second last one there, and we were just able to come away with the win. So take me through the now away from the game's experience in what, Krasnoyarsk. Is that how you say it? That's how you, yeah. Perfect. <laughs> okay. What was life like there? I, the, I looked up the city. It's bigger than Winnipeg, not yeah. by a whole lot. It seems kind of similar in, in size and climate. But what was life like in Russia for your week there? Honestly, um, I can't speak for the girls, but for us and for all the guys, competitors we talked to, like everybody absolutely loved it. Like we went in there. Not really expecting, you know, too much. We didn't know what to expect, I guess. And uh, I think that was for the best because we were kind of shocked at how well everything was organized, how everything was put together, how beautiful the city actually is. Like, we uh, we really enjoyed it. It was actually nicer there than it was here. It was, like, minus five every mm. day. And it was a five-minute walk to the arena. And, it, like, the arena was, like, less than two years old. So the whole, uh, the whole event was just unbelievable. Like, even... Going to Worlds in 2018 for like as an alternate for my cousin, like comparing that experience to what we just had, like it's uh, incomparable. Like I hats off to the city of Krasnodar; they did a wonderful job. Mackenzie, did you get to spend much time exploring the city? Uh, we had the first two days to kind of like explore a little bit, so that was fun. They kind of um, the hotel organized like a bus tour for us, so we got to kind of tour around the city a little bit. So that was really cool. Um, yeah, it was really similar to Winnipeg, either than that they had mountains, so a little bit better, right. which was kind of nice. Um, <laughs> but yeah, same as the boys. We didn't really know what to expect going to the middle of Siberia, so we were very pleasantly surprised when we got there, and we had a lot of fun exploring the city. Any interesting food items that you got to try? Uh, we tried some cow tongue with the girls. I don't think any of them we actually didn't try ate it. it <laughs> no. Sheldon, I think Sheldon yeah. had some. And then um, there was pickled soup we didn't get to try, but pickled we all soup? wanted to try it. Yeah, um, don't know how that works. <laughs> I uh, we went to this Siberian restaurant, and it was one of the best restaurants I've ever had. And I had, I had like a moose risotto that was unbelievable. And then they put goose in their borscht there. Okay, in that restaurant or specifically, and it was really really good apparently. And uh, there was some other fish. Like the, the fit, like cold fish, like just raw fish, is a huge thing out there. Like huh. They uh, hate to cook it; they love it raw. <laughs> <laughs> you gave a little bit of a disgusted face there, Mackenzie. Yeah, yeah, we definitely noticed that they like to not quite cook things as much as we do here in yeah. Canada. So we always had to like ex- ask for like everything like extra cooked, um, which was a new experience. <laughs> um, but we. Our team was never brave enough to go to any of the Siberian like food restaurants. We played it really safe with like, like pizza or pasta. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. So that was that was our experience. But one thing 
they did very well there at every single restaurant was coffee. I oh. say there was like Starbucks coffee like everywhere. Like that's kind of like how it tasted. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. What was the jet lag like? Uh, going there, me and Mac were actually just talking about that on the way here. It's crazy. Like, it's 13 hour difference. The first day we got there, we got there at six in the morning. We kind of tough, we had to tough it through the day just to stay awake. But after that, like we were all pretty much in the clear, like our fifth Thomas had a tough time after that, but it's cause he, he cheated the first day he napped. We weren't supposed to mm. do that. But you know, coming back, like all of us are like passing out at like eight o'clock and waking up at four and like we can't do anything to do it it's you know like kind of take it as it is but yeah the jet lag is a, a little bit of an obstacle i guess yeah this week's been really rough going there it was really easy but this week like i live with two of my teammates and we've all been up at like four or five in the morning every single day so right. hopefully that goes away soon so you got back what kind of sunday night monday morning yeah. right around midnight mm-hmm. and you had a great reception at the airport how quickly did you have to transition back into regular life as students? Uh, right away. I mean, I had actually, I had a midterm last night, um, and then I had a midterm the day before in the morning, and I was so focused on my midterm last night that I didn't even know I had a midterm <laughs> on Wednesday in the morning. Oh, no. So I got to class, and everyone's writing this midterm, and I just, I, I panicked, and I emailed my prof. Kind of, He knew that I was at Worlds, and he was accommodating while I was gone. I just said, like, I'm still adapting to jet lag. Like, I've kind of had a tough time ever since I got back. And so he was nice enough to kind of give me a, a little bit of a break. So we just kind of placed that weight on the final kind of deal. But, okay. um yeah, like if if the profs don't want to be accommodating because they don't have to be, like right. it would be it would be rough for for definitely for me. I'm not sure about Mac, but yeah, me too. Um, I was supposed to have a midterm the Monday that we got back. Oh boy! But yeah, I was like, oh, please don't make me take it. Yeah. <laughs> so my prof was nice enough to move it to Wednesday. So I had a couple extra days to like sleep a little bit and work on that, which was really nice. Good. So what are you taking in school again? Um, I'm I'm in kinesiology. And you? I'm in business. Both at the U of M. Yeah. What now? I guess you're both world champions. Yeah. What now? Uh, so a nice little caveat to winning the Worlds is you get in the Grand Slam of Curling Champions Cup, like the last, last one. So for us, um, Mac's sister Emily is a uh, Sandra Schmiller uh, scholar. Okay. Or like whatever it is. They, they, yeah. She got money from them, but she has to host like a fundraiser. So tonight we're going, all of us, uh, the... My whole team, my whole world championship team, and then Carl and then Max team will be out there too. We're just going to play glow in the dark curling oh, all wow. night tonight. It'll be a really really <laughs> fun time. So that'll be a nice break from the seriousness we've been used to last month. And then uh, after that, kind of just school and prepping for the uh, for the slam at the end of April. Yeah, for us too. That's pretty much it. I think. Um, me and Carly and Jacques and one of his old teammates, we're going to try our try a little oh, bit of mix. Yeah, that's a little right. bit of mixed curling, so that'll yeah. be fun. We got provincials for that in March. Uh, but other than that, and the slam at the end of the year, we're all super excited playing that. Yeah. So have you thought at all about the senior circuit yet? <laughs> no. Like, you mean like the men's and women's? Yeah. Because like it's, it's <laughs> you got to play in the Viterra. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's hard not to think about it. Like, with school... Um, Right now, I've been trying to, like, put it off, but, you know, the next week or so, I'm going to have to try to figure out what I'm going to do. Like, I think we're, we're obviously both going to play. Uh, we haven't really confirmed with anybody what we're doing yet, but, uh, yeah, we're definitely going to play. We just, it's up in the air, you know, for me anyway. Yeah, our first uh, event, I guess, in the men's and women's now being done juniors will be the Grand Slam, so it'll be a good way to kind of, like, kick it off. Because yeah. I was talking to Jason Gunlickson on the show earlier this week, and he said he was joking with your team all year that you're too good for juniors. You should be playing with the women. Oh, he told you about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. So how closely will you guys be watching the Briar? Oh, yeah. I That was the one thing about Krasnoyarsk. It had nothing to do with Krasnoyarsk. It was just that we couldn't watch the Scotties while mm, we were there just right. because um, not only, like, you can't watch it online TSN unless you, like, Geo-locked, yeah. Yeah. But... Also, the time difference. Like most mm-hmm. some of the games, we at two thirty in the morning, and obviously, if we're playing in the morning, we wouldn't watch them. But it'd be nice to just kick back, watch the briar, and watch the best in the world to kind of do what they do. But it must have been, you know, the flip side of that is people back home having to pull all nighters to watch you guys play. Yeah. yeah, I think our final was at like one in the morning, and it was our um, where I come from, Altona. They had a viewing party um, at my home club, and there was people in their pajamas sitting there watching curling at one in the morning, and that was really cool. What does it mean to you, though, that people are still staying up late to watch you play back home? Yeah, it, it's it's actually really cool. Like, not even for um, to watch us play. Like, throughout the week, it was there was three draws, a morning draw, afternoon draw, night draw. And if you played on the morning draw, the night draw, it was fine because you played either at 8 at night or 6 in the morning. So our parents weren't you know, too hard done by. But if you played at the afternoon draw... That's 1 a.m., right? That's 1 a.m. You stay up for two hours after that just to watch line scores because none of our games were televised until the final because oh. they, they only... Um, the Russian, like a Russian TV provider, bought the exclusive rights to the event to just show the Russian teams. Oh. So unless you played the Russian teams, you were never televised so they would just stay up for three hours just to watch the play-by-play online i've I've read stories about your mom who works for tsn just basically never sleeping because she was doing all the work at the scotties too yeah that's a lot of curling for her so yeah hats off to her so uh mackenzie to be able to do this obviously your, your sister's there your dad's there whole family kind of ordeal to wrap up your junior career you probably couldn't have asked for anything more no exactly like i mean uh, when I was little, like, this was the dream, like, to win Canadians, to go to Worlds, put on that Canada jacket, and to now, like, come back with a gold medal. It's just an absolute dream come true. And, I mean, to do it with, with my dad and my sister, like, yeah, like you said, you couldn't ask for anything more. And we talked about this a bit after you guys won nationals. You were a wreck watching your girlfriend play. Yep. This time, you guys went first. Yeah. How different was that? Actually, kind of an interesting tidbit is that the whole week, if we played before them, Whatever we did, they did. So we played our first draw before them. We lost. They lost. Our last round robin game, we played Scotland in the morning. They, they played after us. They lost. So we're like, okay, well, the only two losses they've had is when we've, we've screwed up. So if we win the final, they're going to win. They have no choice but to win it. So, <laughs> and it kind of, it was also a little bit helpful too in the stands, like knowing that, you know, we won already. It kind of was a, maybe, I guess, a bit better for me watching it. But, you know, I thought that they had a, a good chance. Even when they got down early, they got down to rush early and never gave up. And so I was a little bit better emotional-wise actually being in the building, but it was still, uh, yeah, still a little bit nerve-wracking. And from your team's point of view at Nationals, you got to watch them play while, with gold medals around your neck. This time, they're watching you play. You have to watch them before your match so you're yeah. probably thinking, I want them to win, but at the same time, crap, we still got to play. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think we were at breakfast. We found a really good breakfast spot um, a couple minutes away from our hotel, and we were just we watched the whole game there. And like Jacques was a wreck watching Carly. Carly was a wreck watching Jacques. <laughs> um, we watched the last couple ends, and she was just she was so excited when they won, and we all were. Um, but yeah, it was really nice at nationals playing before them, knowing we had won already, and then watching them. So yeah. knowing they had won, we just felt like a lot of pressure to like, we really wanted to win. Nice. Yeah. So I guess it's uh, 
time to go to bed soon? Yeah, pretty much. We were saying, like, we, we wake up at, like, 4 in the morning, and then by the time it's, like, noon. So how do you fix that? Crashing. Good I don't question. Know. I guess tough through it. We're, I'm getting better slowly, marginally every day. But yeah, maybe. Lots of coffee the last couple of days, especially when I was studying for my mission. Well, maybe the curling will help. It'll allow you to stay up late, watch the evening draws of the briar. And True. Then you can crash at, like, whatever, 9, 9 10 p.m. So. Yeah. Hopefully. Hopefully. Appreciate you both coming in. Congratulations again, and uh, best of luck as you go forward here. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much. The New York Islanders retiring the number 91 tomorrow as they host the Boston Bruins. They've retired Dennis Potvin's five, Clark Gillies 9, Brian Trotche's 19, Mike Bossy's 22, Bob Nystrom's 23, John Tonelli's 27, Billy Smith's 31, but 91 belongs to Butch Goring, born in St. Boniface, who won four Stanley Cups with the Islanders during their heyday in the 80s. Goring now working as a color analyst on Islanders broadcast for MSG. And he joins us now on the sports show. But first of all, congratulations on this. What's it feel like to be getting your number retired? Well, it's huge. It, uh, you know, certainly you, you don't grow up thinking about having your number retired. You think about playing in the NHL and, and winning the Stanley Cup. And uh, anything after that is kind of icing on the cake. Um, but let me just say I'm excited about it. My entire family is excited about it. My friends are excited about it. So it's, 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 it's a big moment. So what, what kind of festivities are planned for you tomorrow? <laughs> well, uh, tonight we're, I'm having a, we're having dinner with family and friends. So there'll be about 30 people. And then uh, tomorrow, obviously, um, uh, there'll be a lot of people. I mean, there'll obviously there'll be – it's a big game for the Isles against the Bruins, so there'll be about 15,000 people there. But, um, you know, we'll have the on-ice festivities and uh, some of the um, some of our NHL teammates, uh, Hall of Famers, that is, will be there and and uh, the ownership and, um, you know, obviously the New York Islander team. So we'll, we'll, there'll be some uh, uh, pleasantries exchanged, some speeches, and uh, but, uh, you know, the whole affair won't really take much more than a half hour. Are you calling tomorrow's game too? No, no, I'm not working. Okay. <laughs> I decided that I, I probably needed to take the day off. Figured, figured. So um, do you often think about those glory days in the 80s with the Islanders? Yeah, all the time. I mean, I'm obviously I'm, I'm doing all the Islander broadcasts. So, you know, when you're there all the time, especially when I'm at the Nassau Coliseum and you see all those banners up there. And, and so it's, you know, I, I played with all those guys. So um, there's always a constant reminder, um, you know, that uh, we had a heck of a run and um, <laughs> you know how can you not think back when you've had that much success and some of the names that you'll be joining in the rafters I'm sure that means a lot to you too it, it, it really does I mean uh, they, they, you know they they were great players they're they're Hall of Famers and um, there's a few that are, aren't Hall of Famers but they're just they, they were great teammates and you know, as you mentioned, when we reflect back, I mean, the fact that we were able to win four straight Stanley Cups, no easy task, and no one's done that in a long, long time. And uh, 19 straight playoff series, you know, we think it's the greatest accomplishment in sports history. I mean, it's just uh, anybody that's played hockey knows how grueling that, that is and um, how lucky you have to be, how healthy you have to be, and how much talent you have to have. So, um, you know, we think about those times and then we're proud of what, uh, what we have accomplished. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's fun to be, um, with those guys again, because obviously we have forged a tremendous bond 
when you go through what we went through and spend as much time together as we all did, then you know you become more than friends. It's almost like your brothers. Now you were drafted into the NHL by the LA Kings. Spent more time in LA than you did in New York and put up bigger numbers in LA. But obviously, it's the cups that matter the most, and that's kind of what your legacy is as part of that forepeat for the Islanders. Yes, it, it it really is, and you know I felt very fortunate to be a part of that group. I mean, uh, I've said it many times. I mean, they were a really good hockey team before I ever got there. I mean, they had a couple of setbacks in '78 and '79. I mean, they're the best team with the best record in '79. They could have easily have won the cup in 1979. So, um, you know, every once in a while, you you um, you fall into a pretty good situation, and and for me, that's exactly what happened, and and it's changed my it changed my life and it's changed my career and people didn't know a whole lot about me as an LA King except for my friends and such but you know once I became part of that dynasty and was uh, front and center and from uh, really from April right into June um, you know tremendous exposure so it uh, you know really did change my career. Talking with Butch Goring, Winnipeg's own now a broadcaster with the New York Islanders tomorrow getting his number retired by the Isles. So you go into the NHL basically right as the L.A. Kings are born into the NHL as well. What were those early days like in L.A. with hockey being, I imagine, kind of a foreign concept to California? Well, we were about eighth on the totem pole, I would tell you that much. But, uh, you know, uh, we had a good core of fans, eight to 10,000, and, and they showed up on a pretty regular basis, and they were enthusiastic. Um, obviously, there's a lot of Canadians down there. They they holiday down there. They move down there. So there, there was good support. Uh, but it, uh, more importantly, is uh, we didn't have a very good team for for at least the first three four years, and and that was hard. Uh, you know, for me, uh, especially in the first year, it was easy to put the losses aside quickly because I was striving to stay in the National Hockey League and obviously enjoying life, but. You know, a couple of years uh, of losing, uh, it gets very frustrating, and it's just it's just not fun. And because you're kind of like, okay, well, I'm here, I'm in the NHL, or I'm an NHL player, but now I need to win. And uh, so it was difficult for for a while. But once Bob Pulford became the coach, uh, things changed for us, and then we started to compete. Did you take any pride in the Kings winning a couple of cups this decade? I'm, I'm happy for him. Uh, you know, I, I can't take anything out of it uh, my, myself, but I, but I am happy for uh, for the organization, and I'm happy for the fans. Uh, they've been loyal fans. They, they've hung in there. And, and so with the opportunity to, uh, you know, for them to enjoy some success, I mean, uh, why not? I, I would feel the same way about any of my friends that played in the NHL that, um, you know, as long as they didn't take it at my expense, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm happy for them. It's a uh, it's as we all know it's difficult to win a stanley cup and so uh once you do that um you know you can take an awful lot of pride in it and a lot of comfort and you know okay your career's uh, certainly gone in the right direction so yeah I, i'm really happy for the la area when you were playing in the nhl did you ever think or was it a, a plan to become a broadcaster once you were done <laughs> no Never crossed my mind, uh, although I will say when I was a kid and then I had my hockey game, I would pretend, uh, you know, I was a big Red Wing fan. So I would go like, uh, you know, out of the Vecchio, the Vecchio to Mahavlige and, you know, that kind of stuff. And, but it wasn't because I ever thought I was going to be, um, you know, any kind of an analysis, analysis I would guy. Or I, I just was going to, I mean, I wanted to play. And, and then when I couldn't play anymore, I wanted to coach and, uh, 
and then the opportunity came to get in the, into the TV side, and um, I said, hey, why, why not? I, you know, it's going to keep me around the uh, hockey. It's going to keep me around young hockey players, and, and I'm going to be involved in the game. So, um, you know, I've been very fortunate that I've been able to stay in hockey, really, my entire life. Other than when the Islanders come to Winnipeg, do you get back home much? Uh, yeah, I do. I, you know, I play in the Dale Howard Cup tournament and then I usually try to get home one other time. I mean, I'm, um, my dad died a couple of years ago, but my mother's still alive. My brothers and sisters live there. So I, um, you know, I try to get home to say hello. What do you miss most about, uh, Winnipeg other than your family? Uh, well, I, I mean, I've always liked Winnipeg. Winnipeg is, uh, you know, obviously I spent the first, uh, 19 years of my life there and uh, I still have lifelong friends and, the summers are always great, and um, you know I spend a lot of my time up in in uh, Dauphin, Manitoba, at a place called Oakra Beach. So um, I have a lot of good memories about uh, you know the, the province of Manitoba, and uh, so it, it's it's fun to get back. Some news today before I let you go that it looks like the Isles will play all their home games this postseason and all of next season at the Coliseum before the move to Belmont Park. How big a deal is that for the fans and the players? It's huge. It's really huge. I mean, obviously for the fans, it's um, you know it's, it's such a great old building. The atmosphere uh, they create is uh, is is unbelievable. And you know, Barry Trotz talks about it's a six game advantage as far as wins when you're playing in the Coliseum. And I think for the players, they're they're still they you know they there's a history there with uh, with that group. And so I think it's um, it's it's a huge uh, advantage for the Islanders and a very comfortable advantage, no doubt about it. Is, is Brooklyn uh, and the Barclays Center kind of an, uh, a weird place to play hockey? What's it like playing hockey in there, a, a building clearly built for basketball? Uh, I don't find it weird. I mean, unfortunately, the seating for hockey is not great uh, because they, you know, they, the angle of the seats is a little lower a lower degree than, than it would be for hockey. So, you know, along the boards, it's difficult for a lot of people to, uh, to deal with. But... Uh, um, outside of that, I mean, uh, you know, it's the, the rink's the same size. So, um, and, and interestingly enough, the Islanders ha- actually have a better record hmm. at uh, the Barclay than they than they do at the uh, Coliseum. So, <laughs> it's a little strange. Though it didn't necessarily do well for them in the playoffs last year at Barclays. Well, I, I, I you know what they they won the first series and uh, that was at the Coliseum, but. Um, what hurt the Islanders most wasn't the building. It, it, it was the 10-day layoff. They just never were able to recapture that momentum, and and um, and, and that was huge. Uh, they were always a little half a step behind in their game, and they weren't as sharp. So you can't take 10 days off in the middle of the season and expect to be as good, and, and they were so good at that point in time. Right. Uh, before I let you go, how far can this year's team go? Well, I think if they can find a way to get, you know, find find a scoring touch, like they need to get on a bit of a roll. They they have plenty of chances to score each and every game, but they can't find the back of the net. So um, that really will be the uh, the difference maker. The every other part of their game is real good. They play good playoff hockey. They're hard to score on. Uh, unfortunately, you know, they could beat three two or two one, and and that has to change for them. And if they can do that, they get some timely goals. Um, they give everybody trouble. I mean, they gave uh, St. Louis a heck of a game last night. And actually, at the end of the day, we're unfortunate to lose. They made a mistake a couple of minutes ago in the game. So um, they can compete, and um, so they, they'll, they'll be trouble for whoever they play. Butch, I appreciate your time tonight, and have a blast tomorrow at your number retirement. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Sport Manitoba has a campaign called No Ref, No Game. And let's face it, if you've 
Played organized sports, guess what? Kind of got to have refs. Self-officiating is a thing in some rec leagues, but when it comes to the real serious stuff, you got to have refs, so be nice to refs. As we are joined by Hector Vergara of Manitoba Soccer. Uh, Hector, it's important to be nice to refs, right? Hi, how are you? Uh, you bet. It's uh, They're a key component of the game, no matter the sport. Um, obviously, um, you know, you have your pillars, right? You have your you have the organization of volunteers that put everything together, and then you have your coaches, and you have your players, and you have your referees, and all those components together uh, create the competition environments that we have in our province. And um, obviously, uh, a lot of the referees in our province, in every sport, are young uh, males and females who are trying to learn how to referee. Uh, they're no different than a coach who's entered uh, the coaching ranks of the first year and is coaching his son or daughter and no different than a young player who's learning how to play the game, no matter what the sport is. Um, and we have to take that into consideration that every single one of those individuals is is learning how to do their craft. And uh, it takes time to become a good referee, and it's important for them to uh, to respect the fact that uh, someone is making a huge effort to uh, to learn and to, to do the best possible job. Believe me, there is no referee in the world that wants to go out on the field and make a mistake. No different than your son or daughter wants to go out playing the game and, and be the best they can be without making mistakes. But obviously we know we're dealing with human beings and it's, uh, it's natural for them to, uh, in the learning process, to, to make mistakes. And, and sometimes that's how you learn best is, is by making mistakes. Why do you think we sometimes forget in the heat of the moment that refs you know they're human too we ex- we always hold them to the highest standard but you know we're talking about a minor hockey game things might get missed and parents get upset but why do you think people maybe forget that in the heat of the moment and maybe you're a little too harsh on officials well i think they forget to keep put things in perspective i mean at the end of the day and and for refereeing is a little more uh, a little bit more difficult i think i mean i can give you the scenario of a referee could referee a fantastic game for let's say the sport of soccer for 45 minutes and a half and uh, complete 90 minutes and everything is going fantastic. And then, you know, one extra minute of play and makes a huge mistake and everything is bad. And I'll reverse that. A player plays completely terrible the entire game, making mistakes all over the place and scores the winning goal. And he's a hero. And that's the difference between refereeing and playing is that, uh, as a referee, you're not forgiven for anything, and that's where we have to take into consideration that that is young people that are learning the game who are refereeing, and uh, we're the adults, and uh, and uh, you you need to step step back from the game and realize that it is, after all, a game. It's not a life and death situation, and we're not talking about the next Wayne Gretzky or the next Messi uh, on the on the pitch or on the hockey ice. So. Um, it's, it's important to keep things in perspective um, and realize that uh, we can be a, a benefit to the, to the referees by letting them do their job and, and being encouraged of anything else. In your many years as an official in the sport of soccer, I'm sure you've seen and experienced and been on the other end of a lot of perhaps verbal abuse over your time. Well, you know, it's different when you're talking the professional environment. That's what sometimes our parents forget is that most of our environment here in the province is going to be, and every, any sport is going to be amateur, so, amateur soccer, amateur sport. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I was, I've been involved in the international game now for over close to 30 years. And uh, 
almost 20 of those years I spent on the pitch uh, with the top players in the world and uh, top competitions, uh, FIFA World Cups and Olympics and all that kind of stuff. And and to be honest, it's totally a different environment. It, it, what what is acceptable sometimes in in those environments is definitely not acceptable in our amateur environment in Winnipeg and in Manitoba or across the world or across the country here in, in Canada. So it, it is it is it is diff- it is much different. And and I saw a lot of it. I saw, I saw a lot of dissension from parents, uh, from coaches, from players uh, at, every, at every level, um, including the, the international scene. But again, I, I, I'm talking when we're talking professional players and top professional environments, that is that is totally. It seems to be a little bit more acceptable, and I think that's a little bit part of the the things that happens to adults is that they see it on television that you know people yell and scream at the referees, and it's okay. You go to the you go to the um, the, the professional environments, uh, whether it's a baseball game or a football game or it's whether a hockey game at MTS Center, and uh, and people are yelling at the referee, and uh, and there's families there, and there's children there, and they all learn from that. And you go, why is that acceptable? Um, maybe it's more acceptable in that professional environment, but it's definitely not acceptable in a in a community center hockey rink or a community center soccer field. Talking with Hector Vergara, Executive Director of Manitoba Soccer Association. When you're working with young officials or if you have any advice for people starting out in soccer or whatever sport they choose to officiate, what advice do you have to younger people who are maybe a little afraid of getting into some kind of confrontation with an angry parent or an angry player? Well, part of it is to avoid being angry and to avoid getting into confrontation. One of the best things that a referee can do is really know the loss of the games or the rules of the competition, uh, rules of your sport, and what you can and cannot do and exactly where your jurisdiction lies and so that you can apply that. And when you apply it, you want to apply it in a very polite, professional, and firm way. Uh, without being abusive, without being disrespectful, let the other person, if they want to be disrespectful, let them be disrespectful. You don't get to that level of, of the individual who is complaining and arguing about what you're calling. And uh, obviously there is re- recourse and, and there is there's a discipline process that can take place and you do your job the best you can and then at the end of the day you have to submit reports and uh, and follow those procedures and let the authorities deal with uh, with the individuals who are who are not behaving properly. Uh, at the end of the day, the best thing you can do is to remain calm because if you lose your cool, then at the end of the day, that just uh, elevates the issue and uh, and you don't get nothing resolved. And, and for, fortunately for us now in soccer, uh, there's a rule that's come in this year where uh, referees are allowed to yellow card or red card a, a team official, meaning a coach, an assistant coach, a manager on the, on the team uh, technical area. Uh, which this is going to facilitate uh, no need for discussion between young young referees and, and adults because at the end of the day you show the yellow card saying that's enough. If you continue, I show you the red uh, without really getting into a discussion because sometimes a young person, 13, 14 years old, talking to an adult uh, is intimidating and uh, it is difficult to have a conversation. Even if you are trying to be very polite and, and assertive, sometimes the individuals are bigger, stronger than you and they have that tall figure in front of a a young uh, official who may feel afraid physically uh, as well as emotionally and psychologically. So at the end, for us in soccer, having the ability to provide the uh, the referee with the uh, opportunity to show a yellow card or show a red card and not really have to say much um, is going to help us, I think, in, in trying to control the behavior of, of parents. But it's, it's, it's too bad that we have to get to that level because it would be a lot better if if parents and coaches realize that, look, we're talking about young people in the community. We're trying to learn. 
we need to be respectful and understand that they're going to make mistakes, just like my son and daughter make mistakes every time I go on the field, or I, as a coach, make tactical decisions that are incorrect and and uh, sometimes uh, to the detriment of my team. So finally, through this no ref, no game campaign, I guess the the message to people is, hey, if you're not nice to us and you don't have us, you can't play. Well, that's at the end of the day, it's important, right? We're, it's one of the pillars of the game, no matter no matter the sport. Uh, the referees are... Or even, you know, you talk about competition and uh, competitive games and recreational games, where even in the recreational games there's referees. And, uh, and many times uh, if a referee in our sport doesn't show up, uh, the next option is a parent to referee, mm. a parent who may have no idea what's, uh, what the rules of the game are. And uh, in soccer we had 260 over 260 changes in the loss of the game in the last three years. So I can just imagine how many changes those parents actually are aware of. And uh, it's important to realize that these kids are trying to learn the laws of the game and trying to apply them uh, to the best of their ability. And, uh, and respect is, is, is the word that we need to use. And, and you're right. At the end of the day, uh, no ref, no game. And uh, we, we want to see kids playing. We want to see referees being able to referee. And we want to see the ability of organizations to increase the number of referees and the quality of referees. It takes about five to ten years to actually make a really, really good referee. And uh, if we lose them in the first or second year, we never get that opportunity to make them good. Hector, appreciate your time tonight. Thanks. No problem. Take care. Thank you for having us. Tune in to the CGOB Sports Show weeknights from 7 to 9 with me, Christian O'Mell. Or you can download the podcast on iTunes. It's actually on iTunes now. Wow. If you got an Android, then I think you're out of luck. But Apple products, you're good. So listen to the podcast. Please subscribe. You can rate it. What's the worst that could happen?